Hello and welcome to this patient education podcast, which is on craniosynostosis or the premature fusion of the bones of the skull. My name is Damien Marucci. I'm a plastic and reconstructive surgeon and craniofacial surgeon in Sydney, Australia. I'm an associate professor of surgery at the University of Sydney and I work as a craniofacial surgeon at the Children's Hospital at Westmead, which is part of the Sydney Children's Hospital network. Now, in terms of explaining craniosynostosis, what my goal is for this podcast is just to give a broad overview of the condition, uh, what it is, what the causes of it are, what's involved with assessing patients uh, who have craniosynostosis, and in broad terms, what are the different treatment options and what are the potential complications of treatment. So first of all, let's just talk about the normal anatomy of the skull. So your skull is made up of a number of bony plates, and where those plates touch, the joint is called a suture. And normally those sutures remain open while the brain is growing. And in fact, the bones grow at the site of these sutures or joints. So in the first two or three years of life, the brain rapidly increases in size. But during that rapid increase, the brain is continuously protected by the bones of the skull. And the way that's able to occur is because the growth of the bones is occurring at the joint, which means there's never a time where the growth of the brain is outstripping the growth of the bones. So what can happen with some children is that these sutures or joints between the two bones confuse early. And that fusion is called craniosynostosis. Cranio, because it refers to the bones of the skull. Synostosis basically means fusion. So when the bones of the skull fuse early, it can have a couple of different effects. The main thing is it can affect the way the head can grow as the brain is rapidly growing. So if you think about one of the sutures which lies in the midline between two of the bones on the side of the head, that's called the sagittal suture. If that suture fuses early, it means that the head can't grow in a side-to-side direction. It can only grow in a forward and back direction. And that leads to a long, narrow head, for example. And I'll go through the different head shapes which are associated with the different areas of the bones of the skull fusing early. Each sutural fusion results in a characteristic head shape. And that has a lot to do with how we diagnose this. Basically, we can have a look at the baby, have a look at the head shape, and work out from the head shape more often than not which sutures are actually fused early. In addition to changing the head shape though, more seriously, fusion of the bones of the skull can put pressure on the brain. In terms of the actual incidence of raised pressure on the brain or raised intracranial pressure, it's a bit controversial, but it's thought that if one suture is involved, that the incidence of raised intracranial pressure is around 15%. Even beyond that, there is an incidence of developmental delay, which is thought to occur with sutural fusion, which is not treated. So for these reasons, the risk of developmental delay the risk of pressure on the brain, and the abnormal head shape, surgery is recommended to treat craniosynostosis. 
There are many different types of craniosynostosis. In this podcast, I'm just going to focus on single suture craniosynostosis or craniosynostosis, which is predominantly affecting only one of the joints of the bones of the skull. I will record at some point another podcast looking at syndromic craniosynostosis. So syndromic craniosynostosis normally involves more than one suture, and it can be associated with other abnormalities of either the face, in particular the development of the cheekbones or the limbs, whether the fingers are joined together, cleft palate, and there's a much higher incidence of developmental delay in many different types of syndromic craniosynostosis. Let's just talk about the cause of craniosynostosis. For the overwhelming number of patients who we see where a single suture is involved and there's no family history, We don't actually know the cause of the craniosynostosis. We're not sure whether it's some sort of pressure effect that happens uh, while the baby is still in the womb or whether there is actually a genetic problem uh, that we haven't identified. But the overwhelming majority of cases, we don't ever find a specific cause for the craniosynostosis. The incidence of craniosynostosis is around 1 in 2,000 babies. Rarely it can be associated with some types of medications, uh, especially anti-epileptic type of medications. Like most things in medicine, it is increased in uh, parents who smoke. And rarely it can be associated with children who have too much fluid around their brain, a condition called hydrocephalus. When you drain the hydrocephalus or put a shunt in, the a result of that can be a loss of pressure pushing out on the skull, and those patients can get a secondary craniosynostosis. But that's actually quite a, a rare form of craniosynostosis. I'd now like to discuss individual types of craniosynostosis. So what I'm going to be talking about are particular sutures or joints in the skull and then explain where those joints are and the head shape that results from that joint or suture fusing early. So before I mentioned the sagittal suture, this is the most common suture to be involved with craniosynostosis. If you look at a patient's skull, the suture that runs down the middle of the head, forward and back, between the two bones on the side of the head, which are called the parietal bones, that suture is called the sagittal suture. If the sagittal suture fuses early, the head can't grow from side to side. And preferentially, the brain, as it continues to grow, will grow in a forward and back direction. And as a result, these babies have a long, narrow skull. That's called scaphocephaly. The children present to our clinic with a very prominent forehead, a long narrow head, and a very prominent back of the head, sometimes called the occipital bullet, because from the side it almost looks like a bullet. Sometimes they can also have a bit of a dip or a saddle in the middle of the head when viewed from the side. Another type of craniosynostosis, which is the second most common type of single suture craniosynostosis, is called metopic craniosynostosis, although some surgeons pronounce it metopic craniosynostosis. So your forehead actually starts out as two bones that join in the middle, and so that goes from the nose up to the soft spot or the anterior fontanelle. When the joint between the two bones of the forehead join early, that suture is called the metopic suture, and therefore the type of 
craniosynostosis is called metopic craniosynostosis. So when the two bones of the forehead join early in the middle of the forehead, the head shape it gives you is basically a triangular-shaped head where you have a prominence in the middle and then you have a recession on either side of the head. So when you look at it from above, when you look at the baby's head from above, it looks like a triangle. There is a continuum, though, in metopic craniosynostosis, and some children have very mild metopic craniosynostosis, whereas others, it's more severe. It can affect the eyes as well. The eyes can be too close together. That condition is called hypotelarism. Telarism referring to the distance between the eyes, hypo meaning small. So children can have the eyes a bit too close together, as well as a prominent middle part of the forehead and a triangular shaped uh, head. There is a condition which is related to the two bones of the forehead uniting. So it's normal for the two bones of the forehead to unite between 6 and 12 months of age. As these two bones unite, sometimes extra bone is produced at the joint running down the middle of the forehead from the anterior fontanelle or soft spot at the front of the head down to the nose region. This can develop a ridge the ridge can be palpable or you can feel it underneath the skin and sometimes it's visible. But the key thing is when you look at the baby's head from above, is the forehead an otherwise normal shaped or is it triangular? Some children have a pretty normal shaped forehead when looked from above, but they have this metopic ridge. Babies who have a metopic ridge are treated differently to babies who have a triangular shaped forehead or trigonocephaly. A metopic ridge is considered to be a benign condition that does not affect the development of the underlying brain in any way. In our experience, the metopic ridge will just go away on its own. It doesn't need surgery, it doesn't need treatment. Often it, we won't do any x-rays or a CT scan, but we can reassure the parents that a metopic ridge is a common thing, it'll go away, it won't affect development, and there's really nothing to worry about. The next type of craniosynostosis I want to talk about is unicoronal synostosis. So between the forehead bone and the bone on the side of the head or the frontal bone and the parietal bone, to give them their medical terms, there is a suture that goes from the soft spot down to the side just in front of the ear. That's called the coronal suture. There is a coronal suture on either side. There's a left coronal and a right coronal. And we call them unicoronal because you can have both coronal sutures involved, which is called bicoronal craniosynostosis. Unicoronal synostosis involving half of the coronal suture can affect either the left side or the right side. It results in an asymmetrical head shape. On the side where the sutural fusion is, on the affected side, there is a loss of projection of the forehead on that side. So the forehead is recessed back such that when you look at the baby's head from above the baby, you can actually see the eyebrow and even sometimes the eye. Whereas on the other side, you'll have a normal forehead contour or sometimes even what we call bossing or an accentuated growth of the forehead on the unaffected side. When you look at the baby's face from in front, you notice a few things. First of all, on the affected side, the eyebrow is often higher and the eye will appear to be more open than on the unaffected side. 
the root of the nose or the most superior part of the nose is deviated towards the side that is fused. In severe cases, it can also affect the face itself and can cause an apparent twisting of the face when you look at the baby's face from in front. That's called facial scoliosis. So unicoronal synostosis unlike metopic synostosis and sagittal synostosis, which we have previously discussed, is an asymmetrical craniosynostosis, which means the goal of surgery is to try to improve symmetry as best we can. It's impossible to make the baby's head completely symmetrical with surgery, but we do our best to try and get as close to symmetry as we possibly can. Now we get into one of the more rare types of craniosynostosis, which is called lambdoid craniosynostosis. The lambdoid suture is at the back of the skull. It is between the bone on the very back of the head, which is called the occipital bone, and the parietal bone, or the bone on the side of the head. Lambdoid craniosynostosis results in flatness of one side of the back of the head, can affect the position of the ear. When you look at the baby from in front, one ear can look higher than the other. And also when you look at the baby's head, the position of the ears from above, you'll notice that one ear tends to be forward or back with respect to the other one. Lambdoid craniosynostosis is the rarest type of single suture synostosis, but like other types of craniosynostosis can affect the development of the underlying brain and does require surgery. One of the goals of the specialists in the craniofacial clinic is to differentiate lambdoid craniosynostosis, where the bones of the skull have fused early, causing flatness of one side or both sides of the back of the head, from something called positional plagiocephaly, which is where the children have an abnormal head shape with flatness of the back of the head, but it's just due to the way the child has been lying, either when they're in the womb or the way they've been positioned in the cot after they were born. And it's, in fact, incredibly common for children to have flatness of one side or the other side of the back of the head and it not being related to craniosynostosis. How can you tell the difference? Well, the differences can be subtle, but it's normally sorted out by doing either an x-ray or a CT scan. But obviously, we do our best to try to avoid x-rays and CT scans in babies as much as possible, as there is a radiation dose involved. Now, we have discussed unicoronal synostosis, which is where one half of the coronal suture, or a unicoronal suture, is involved with fusion. Patients can have both sides of the coronal suture fused. So the fusion goes from in front of the ear on one side, across the top of the head, to in front of the ear on the other side. That's called a bicoronal sutural fusion. That results in a short head called brachycephaly and does need surgery in order to give the brain more room. Commonly, bicoronal craniosynostosis can be associated with other problems in children and not uncommonly children can actually have a genetic cause of the craniosynostosis. These syndromic craniosynostoses are quite complicated and I'm not really going to focus on them in this podcast. I just want to talk about single suture craniosynostosis in this podcast and I'll devote a future podcast to talking about syndromic or multi-suture craniosynostosis. I'd now like to talk about how we commonly investigate craniosynostosis. 
The most important part of the investigations are just taking a history from the parents about any issues during the pregnancy, about whether there's any other family members who may have had treatment for craniosynostosis. In terms of the physical examination, we look at the shape of the head, we look at the palate, we look at the hands, and we look at the child overall to see areas of asymmetry. We feel the child's head to see whether the soft spots either at the front or the back of the head have fused, whether there are any ridges over the sutures, which might be indicative that the bones of the skull have fused early. In terms of the types of investigations we do, the most common type of investigation, if we're very serious that a patient may have craniosynostosis, is a CT scan or a CAT scan. That allows us to look at the bones of the skull and allows us to see whether the bones of the skull have fused early. We can also look at the underlying brain to see whether there are any issues with the underlying brain, whether there's a normal amount of fluid around the brain or too much fluid or not enough fluid. And that can give us an idea as to whether there's any pressure around the brain. An important part of our assessment of children who have craniosynostosis is to look at the back of the eyes. The nerve of the back of the eye comes directly out of the brain. So if there's swelling of the brain or pressure on the brain, that can be reflected in the appearance of the nerve at the back of the eye. So when we look at the back of the eye and we see swelling at the back of the eye, that's called papilledema, and that can be an important sign of raised intracranial pressure. The ophthalmology team will often take photos of the nerve at the back of the eye, which means then they can compare these photos at different time points to see where there are any changes in the swelling of the disc at the back of the eye. There are other investigations that the ophthalmologist can do in order to detect for swelling at the back of the eye, which can be a sign of raised intracranial pressure. Uh, There are other specialized investigations. And again, these are things that can be repeated. And as the child grows older, we can monitor for changes in uh, the appearance of the back of the eye, which might give us an idea as to whether the child is developing raised pressure. I'd now like to talk about surgical approaches to correcting craniosynostosis. Now, the first thing to say with craniosynostosis surgery is that it's a relatively new field. In fact, you'll find that almost every craniofacial unit in the world does a different operation at a different time and for a different reason. But what I want to go through with you is the main types of surgery that we do for craniosynostosis and what they involve. Basically, surgery for craniosynostosis can be divided into very big surgery and little surgery. So the little surgery might just involve removing the fused suture. That's called a suturectomy or sometimes even just an osteotomy where you just divide where the suture has fused. A suturectomy is most commonly done for sagittal craniosynostosis. That is the one where the suture running down the middle of the head has fused early and the head can't grow side to side so the babies end up with a long narrow head. For around 100 years or so this has been treated with a sagittal suturectomy where the fused sagittal suture was removed and that was basically the end of the treatment. Now some children get an excellent result from just having that suturectomy whereas it was a bit hit and miss because some children wouldn't have a great result. So as a result when children are treated with one of these minimal procedures often we'll add in something else. 
So some children will have a suturectomy, and then afterwards they'll be put in a helmet. The idea of this orthotic helmet is that it molds the head as the brain continues to grow. So the child will start out with either a long, narrow head, but then you remove the fused suture. But then you'll put the child in a helmet, which will try to restrict growth in a forward and back direction. And preferentially, the head can grow in a side-to-side direction. The idea is hopefully the child will end up with a rounder head than just doing a suturectomy alone. Another thing that can be added in with one of these minimal procedures is springs. So spring cranioplasty is where the fused bones are unfused by cutting them. And then two metallic springs or three metallic springs are put into the bone in order to push the two bones apart. The patient is then discharged home and a couple of months later, The children come back into hospital for a second smaller operation where the wound is reopened and the springs are removed. So spring cranioplasty is most commonly done again for sagittal craniosynostosis, that's with the long narrow head, or it can also commonly be done for bicoronal craniosynostosis where the children have a short head because the coronal sutures along the side of the skull have fused early. With springs, you can do a cut down from side to side going across the top of the skull and then use the springs to push the back of the head backwards and give the brain room to grow. A final thing that can be done following dividing a fused suture is something called distraction osteogenesis. So what distraction osteogenesis refers to is putting plates and screws on the bones either side of where the suture has been cut There is then something called a distractor arm, which comes out through the skin. And then by turning this distractor, it pushes the two bones apart. So whereas with a spring cranioplasty, you don't have any control over the force which is being used to push the two bones apart, with distraction, you're very tightly controlling it because the parents are taught how to turn the screw of the distractor, and normally it's half a millimetre twice a day, and slowly it stretches the space between the two bones and also stretches the overlying skin. And as a result, you can get quite a large amount of movement. Again, a second procedure is required to remove the distractor, and that procedure is normally a couple of months after the first procedure. I'd now like to talk about big surgery for craniosynostosis, and that is vault surgery. This is the most common type of surgery for craniosynostosis done around the world. And what this involves is removing large amounts of bone on the skull, reshaping the bones by cutting it and using dissolving plates and screws or sutures, and then putting the reshaped skull back together and then closing the wound, usually over a drain. This vault surgery will vary with the type of craniosynostosis. So, for example, children who have unicoronal synostosis, where the forehead is prominent on one side and recessed on the other, or metopic craniosynostosis, where they have a triangular-shaped forehead, will have a vault procedure called a fronto-orbital advancement and remodeling procedure. This involves removing the bones of the forehead and around the tops of the eyes, reshaping them and then putting them back onto the skull and closing the wound. So as you can hear, it's a pretty big procedure which is done with plastic surgeons and neurosurgeons working together. 
For children who have sagittal craniosynostosis, where the head is long and narrow, they may have a vault procedure called a total calvarial vault remodeling. Now, as it sounds, that involves remodeling all the bones of the skull. So the bones at the front, the back, the side will be removed. They'll then be reshaped and then replaced back onto the baby's head using dissolving plates and screws, again with a drain. Lambdoid craniosynostosis, again, that's where the bones at the back of the head have fused early, can also be treated with vault surgery, where the bones at the back of the skull are removed, they're reshaped, and then replaced again with dissolving plates and screws. I'd now like to talk about the potential complications of surgery. Craniosynostosis surgery is very big surgery on a very small baby. And there are a number of complications that we do everything we can to avoid. The main serious potential complication is bleeding. Babies only have a very small amount of blood in their bodies and they can lose a relatively large amount of blood undergoing surgery for craniosynostosis. So the need for a blood transfusion is pretty common. For children having vault surgery, many, many children will require a blood transfusion. And one of the advantages of some of the minimalist or suturectomy types of procedures is many children will avoid having a blood transfusion. Rarely, the bleeding can be extremely severe such that we need to give drugs in order to keep the blood pressure up. And sometimes the bleeding can even be life-threatening. But thankfully, that is incredibly rare in experienced craniofacial units. The scars tend to be kept within the scalp. The scars are permanent. Hair does not grow through a scar, but the idea is to make the scar as narrow as possible so that the hair can be combed over the scar and the scar won't be particularly visible. But even having said that, because the baby's head will grow rapidly through life, the scars can stretch, and sometimes when these children have finished growing and reach adulthood, they do need surgery in order to decrease the width of the scar. The scalp has a very good blood supply, so thankfully infection is relatively rare, but infection can occur after surgery, sometimes within the wound, rarely deep inside around the bone or even around the lining of the brain, but that's incredibly rare. Infections can also occur in the lungs or in the bladder after any type of surgery, and craniosynostosis surgery is no different. With craniosynostosis surgery, we're operating near the brain, but not on the brain. We're operating near the eyes often, but not on the eyes. And it's very rare for either of those structures to be damaged. The brain floats in fluid called CSF, or cerebrospinal fluid. That CSF is held within a bag, which is a very tough membrane called the dura. The bone is outside the dura. So the goal of our surgery is to do all of our surgery without making a hole in the dura. If we do make a hole in the dura, often all we need to do is to put some stitches in so fluid doesn't leak out. But sometimes fluid can continue to leak out after the surgery. That's called a CSF leak. And sometimes that CSF leak actually needs treatment. With craniosynostosis surgery, in terms of changing the head shape, the goal is to try to produce as normal a head shape as we possibly can. Obviously, you can't beat Mother Nature, and things can change with ongoing growth. So there is a chance that some patients will require some revisional surgery in order to improve the appearance of the skull at a later time. 
Most of the time, this is pretty minor surgery. It might involve using some bone cement or sometimes some of the patient's own fat in order to recontour an area. Sometimes we need to shave down some areas that have grown too much or use bone cement or fat to fill up an area that hasn't grown enough. Sometimes you actually need to remove bony pieces in a vault procedure in order to improve the appearance of a particular part of the skull. One of the reasons why we do craniosynostosis surgery is to prevent the development of pressure on the brain. Even doing this surgery, however, a small number of children will develop pressure on the brain or raised intracranial pressure. And that's one of the reasons why we continue to see children in our clinic until they're well into their teenage years to make sure they're not developing headaches or changes in vision that might be a sign of raised intracranial pressure. If we do see children where their head growth doesn't appear to be keeping up with what we think it should, or they're complaining of headaches or changes of vision, there are a number of things we'll do in order to assess whether the child is developing raised intracranial pressure. We can do a CT scan to see whether the brain has enough room. We can arrange for the eye doctors or the ophthalmologist to have a look at the back of the eye and to do some of the specialized tests that I was talking about before to see whether there's any swelling of the nerve at the back of the eye because that can be a good indicator of raised intracranial pressure. If there are doubts about raised intracranial pressure after all these investigations, the neurosurgeons can do an invasive monitoring test. What this involves is actually an operation to insert a pressure monitor into the brain and that is the definitive way of determining whether there is extra pressure on the skull. If the children have developed pressure on the brain, it may mean that surgery is required to increase the size of the skull to give the brain more room. However, there are some other causes of pressure on the brain that don't necessarily require major surgery. So, for example, if a child has obstructive sleep apnea or snoring, this can cause problems with the amount of oxygen getting into the bloodstream, or even more importantly, problems with the amount of carbon dioxide that can get out at night when the child is asleep. Retained carbon dioxide due to sleep apnea or snoring can lead to increased blood flow to the brain, which can lead to raised intracranial pressure. So we'll often arrange for a sleep study to be performed, because if children do have sleep apnea diagnosed on a sleep study, Correcting the sleep apnea can often correct the raised intracranial pressure. Some children with craniosynostosis develop fluid on the brain or excess fluid around the brain. This is called hydrocephalus. Children who have hydrocephalus and raised pressure benefit from having the fluid drained. This is called a shunt and a VP shunt is the most common type of shunt where the fluid is drained from the head down into the abdomen. And by relieving the excess fluid, it can also relieve the excess pressure on the brain. One of the things that is difficult to predict after surgery for craniosynostosis is the development of problems with learning or developmental delay. It's controversial as to how much craniosynostosis contributes to the incidence of developmental delay. But one of the goals of our clinic is to keep a very close eye on children who have craniosynostosis so that if they're showing delays in speech or motor development, 
we can jump on that early and do early intervention with occupational therapists and speech therapists to make sure that children are reaching their full potential. A rare complication that can be seen in children who have had surgery for craniosynostosis are seizures or epilepsy. If children develop seizures after craniosynostosis surgery, we will always do some form of imaging, whether it's a CT or an MRI, to look at the structure of the brain to make sure that there's not a problem in that regard. Children will need something called an EEG, which measures the electricity of the brain, and that is the definitive way of diagnosing epilepsy. Epilepsy is not treated with surgery normally. Normally, it's treated with medications that would be prescribed under the guidance of a pediatrician or a specialist neurologist in epilepsy. I hope that this podcast has answered some of your questions about craniosynostosis, the way we investigate it, the different types of it, the way we treat it, and the potential complications. My name is Damien Marucci, and thank you very much for listening.